<laughs> Are you awake? Well, um, welcome to the National Press Club. <laughs> uh, this is not a press conference, though. Um, but uh, the beginning of our, uh, the real beginning of our look at modern uh, American politics. So far in this Presidential Academy, you've been um, uh, exploring the 18th century and the 19th century and you've come up to the edge of the, we've come up to the edge of the 20th century and today we plunge into uh, that, new, that new century. Uh, and with it, uh, we, we turn to a, in a way, a much more familiar world of um, American politics because we're going to be talking about forces that really shaped the rest of 20th century politics. If you look back on the 20th century, as we now can, as a, as a whole, as a finished uh, political product. I think you could say, we, we see the 20th century politically as a, um, a sprawling battle between two movements, between uh, two movements that were originally intellectual movements, um, beginning with scattered thinkers, uh, journalists, publicists, professors, but these intellectual movements eventually became political movements that settled down into one of the two major parties and eventually took it over and converted it to, to their own um, uh, principles. And these two movements are liberalism and conservatism. Uh, and the 19th, 19th century politics are not divided into liberals and conservatives nor our 18th century politics. We can read back into them these terms. But essentially, they were not organized ideological or political groups in, the, in those days. So in coming to our own day, in trying to understand uh, modern American politics, uh, we have to come to terms with, with some new terms of art, some new political words um, that will move people across the spectrum um, of American political opinion. Uh, some of these words, let me just tick off a few of them that we're going to be talking about in the next uh, two days. First of all, liberalism, conservatism itself as a positive force is a new thing. Leadership, nowadays you can't run for any political office, um, even if it's a dog catcher, without being a, claiming to be a leader of some sort. And if you're a leader, you've got to have two things that leaders have in modern America, which are also new terms of political art, really. You've got to have vision, right? <clears throat> in 19th century politics and in 18th century politics, vision is not necessarily, uh, I mean, to be a visionary politician in the terms of the Federalist Papers is a very bad thing because it means you're not, a, you're not realistic. You don't look at the world as it actually is. Um, but in the 20th century, and even today in the 21st century, to be, to be a leader means to have a vision of the future towards which you want to lead people. Now, how did, that, how did having a vision become such a good thing? That's what, one of the things we're going to be talking about in Woodrow Wilson uh, in these readings today. And another term which becomes very important in 20th century politics, compassion. Um, compassion, of course, the word exists in the 19th century and in the 18th century, uh, but it really doesn't have uh, political legs 
It doesn't have much of a, of a role in politics. So despite his uh, near-constant denunciations of slavery as, as unjust, Abraham Lincoln doesn't really lean on the argument that slavery is, uh, is uncompassionate or cruel. I mean, he's aware that it, it, it often is uh, very cruel, of course. But for him, the most important question is whether it is right or wrong, not whether it causes pain and suffering or doesn't cause pain and suffering. But in the 20th century, um, compassion is elevated uh, into a very high place among political values. Uh, and we need to come to terms with that as well. So what's our agenda then? Basically this morning, we're going to take uh, a look at modern American liberalism in two phases. Uh, in the first session this morning, we're going to look at progressivism, um, mainly in its uh, Woodrow Wilsonian uh, version, but with a few comments about Teddy Roosevelt um, along the way. And then later this morning, in our second session, we're going to look at uh, the New Deal and Franklin Roosevelt and the rise of the modern welfare state. Um, those are our two bites of the liberal apple. And then tomorrow, um, we'll have one session in which we'll look basically at the rise of modern American conservatism through readings about Ronald Reagan and George W. Bush. This may be the story of the rise and decline of modern American conservatism. I, we'll leave that to our discussion um, um, tomorrow. But as you can see, conservatives get the sh short end of the stick, only one session, whereas liberals get two. Uh, <laughs> that's right. Yes, sir. Is there a question? Well, in both cases, we'll try to understand them as they understand themselves, and then you know, you, you, we'll make judgments based on, on our better understanding of them once we reach that point. Um, but on the other hand, I think it's not necessarily unfair to spend, as it were, twice as much time on liberalism as on conservatism, because liberalism has been far more influential, I would say, in the 20th century than conservatism has. Um, and just to round off this point, um, progressivism and, and liberalism really dominate the 20th century. Uh, they set new terms for political debate. That these are these new words we're going to be talking about. Um, and they set new rules of the game in politics. They create a new kind of state within the old state. They create the welfare state or the administrative state, as it's sometimes called, um, alongside the, the older limited constitutional state with which we're familiar from the 19th century and the 18th century. Um, it is, of course, interesting that we call these things a new kind of state, the welfare state, implying that it really is something different in kind from the state that was already there, from the governmental apparatus that was already uh, present. Uh, and in, in making these epic changes, beginning early in the century, liberalism, as I say, really makes the 20th century what my late friend Tom Silver called the liberal century. Conservatism comes on the scene only relatively late in the century. As a, as a self-conscious political movement, it doesn't really begin to exist until the late 1950s. It doesn't have a political triumph 
until 1980, when Ronald Reagan uh, is elected with a, uh, a more conservative Republican <coughs> Senate. In a way, it doesn't come close to a complete political triumph until 1994, when the House of Representatives finally falls into the Republican camp after 40 years of uninterrupted Democratic control, an unprecedentedly long stretch um, of the control of the lower house um, of the legislature by one party. Never had happened before in American history that one party controlled it for 40 straight years. <clears throat> and, but the Democrats did that until 1994. So, uh, you know, conservatism has certainly had its innings in the very last part of the 20th century and is still having some innings today under the title of compassionate conservatism. But in a way, the very title, Compassionate Conservatism, shows you that uh, conservatives have had to bend the knee to the new liberal terms of debate and to the new liberal values that have come forward in the earlier part of the 20th century. Uh, as David Frum used to say, this slogan, Compassionate Conservatism, combines the right's favorite noun with the left's favorite adjective. You know, compassionate conservatism. But it's, uh, it's not something that necessarily uh, sprang out of conservatism uh, itself. And yes, sir. So would you say that in a sense conservatism is a reaction to liberalism? Very much so, yes. Um, it's not, it is not simply a reaction to liberalism, but the occasion for the rise of conservatism is um, a felt need to resist and indeed to turn back liberalism in the United States and of course communism abroad. But the, those two things come together, as we'll be talking about later. Okay. Um, questions on that? Yes, sir. Greg. Well, I have one question. Could you, how would you define these two terms? Maybe we talk about that in the next couple of days. Some vague or general definition of them, I think, would be helpful. Well, um, let's put it this way. I, the intellectual roots of liberalism are progressivism. So let's start talking about about that. I think that sort of the change in, in um, world view that liberalism represents will become apparent when we look closely at Woodrow Wilson and to a lesser extent at Teddy Roosevelt. Um, liberalism is really a term that replaces progressivism in the, in the late 20s and early 30s. It's the term that Franklin Roosevelt prefers uh, for his own self-description and the description of his, uh, of his movement. Um, partly because progressivism had played itself out and to some extent discredited itself as a political movement because of the failure of the League of Nations Treaty after World War I and the collapse of the sort of hopeful progressive era of the, of the teens in the United States. Conservatism, the name tells you um, something about it. That is, it, uh, it presumes there's something worth conserving uh, and is uh, uh, adamant to conserve that. Uh, but the term itself is not unrevealing either. I mean, in this sense that conservatism is not the opposite of liberalism exactly. It might be something like the opposite of progressivism. Progressivism, um, which I could, you, you could simply define progressivism as the confidence that the future will be better than the present and that the present is better than the past. That is, sometimes political labels actually tell you something. Progressives believe in progress. Uh, they believe that there is an, an inevitable or almost inevitable 
um, tendency for the future to outrank the present and the present to be uh, better in many respects and perhaps in all respects uh, than the past. And, and simply put, that's what progressivism assumes. Uh, and it wants to accelerate our advance into the future. Conservatism seems to want to put the brakes on that advance, to slow it, to make sure that we're conserving what is best and not hurrying into new things that are not as good as the old things that we have already. Yes, ma'am. That's pro yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Pro progressivism is a confidence that the future is going to be better than the present, and the present better than the past. Right. Conservatism, in a way, is the complement of progressivism. I mean, um, conservatism says we want to conserve what we have instead of changing it um, unintelligently or ill-advisedly. Right. So th there is a sense in which conservatism um, is part of progressivism. Or, uh, there's a sense in which I w I'm going to, we're going to talk about the ambiguity in the term conservatism tomorrow. Uh, but there is a sense in which conservatism presupposes progressivism or liberalism and thus may not be a fundamental challenge to it, in which case describing the 20th century as the liberal century is, is even more true. Because even the opposition to liberalism, may, it, it turns out, may owe a lot to liberalism and hence may not be fundamentally an opposition to it. Anyway, this, these sort of <laughs> opaque claims we'll try to um, shed some light on in the course of our uh, discussion. Other preliminary questions? Yes. Yes. Can we, can we just uh, analyze the good and the, and I want to use the word, uh, the, the good and not good policies of the, of the liberal uh, movement and the way the, uh, the, the conservative, uh, conservative uh, movement are trying to change it by calling themselves at this kind of uh, compassionate uh, conservatives, right? Well, we will talk about uh, first of all, what we mean by the welfare state, what FDR meant by it, uh, what the New Deal means, and the significance of the New Deal for the rest of the 20th century's political history. Um, we're not going to go, we don't unfortunately have time to get into the specific programs, I think, of the New Deal and try to, or the Great Society for that matter, and try to pick through them and decide what's, what's better and what's worse. That's, that's a, a longer undertaking. Yes, ma'am. When we were at Gettysburg, uh, Professor Gelzo was uh, talking about the distinction between the Enlightenment philosophers and the Romanticists and um, sort of uh, dividing between Lincoln, who we trace back to the, the Enlightenment and the value of prudence, and the abolitionists who had sort of a m uh, moral certainty that there mm -hmm. is an ideal that we need to be doing everything possible to try and achieve that ideal, whereas Lincoln is more, what can we do pragmatically to achieve and worry about unintended consequences? How do these trends fit in? I mean, can you say that the liberals come out of that romantic uh, tradition and the conservatives are coming out of that more pragmatic and tradition? Did everyone hear that question? Okay. Is it, okay. Um, 
uh, that's a tough question to answer. Yes, there are some definite connections between the Romantic tradition and indeed um, uh, Southern social science, Southern apologetics uh, before the war and um, progressivism. And we'll touch on these today, this morning. Um, whether I think it's more it's more dubious to say that conservatism represents the prag, the pragmatic or prudential approach of Lincoln. There are elements of conservatism that do, but there are also elements of it as an intellectual movement, at least, that don't. Uh, I mean, you have, for example, uh, we'll talk about this tomorrow. There are libertarians. An important part of the conservative coalition in America are economic conservatives and philosophically economic conservatives who call themselves libertarians. And, and prudence is not their middle name. Uh, <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, I mean, they have, they have an abstract theory, uh, which is very, um, you might say, a, a, very much like uh, enlightenment speculation. But enlighten, in, in, enlightenment speculation doesn't always lead to prudential applications of itself. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I didn't hear the lecture, so I'm not sure exactly how um, Professor Galzo connects the two. But, but prudence and the enlightenment, you'd have to make an argument to link those two things intimately together, I think, prudence and enlightenment. I think you can make an argument like that, but, it, but not all enlightenment thinkers are prudent, and not all prudent thinkers are part of the enlightenment. So... They're not, they're not coterminous. Okay. Um, l let me sort of now res re resume from my 15-minute talk of the other day. Um, we, were, we were talking in that introduction about um, uh, the impact that the Civil War had on post-Civil War America, on thinking and especially political thinking after um, the war. Um, and I want to sort of just bring those remarks to a, a conclusion so we can, now, we can turn to progressivism. And the last thing I want to say then is this. Um, across the board, one gets, one gets the feeling among the most, probably the most interesting political thinkers in America after the Civil War, that one era has ended and a new era has begun. Uh, one finds this expressed very strongly by Teddy Roosevelt, uh, by Woodrow Wilson, that a chapter of American history really has been brought to a close, not just because it's now no longer a question whether the states have the right to secede or not, but also because the impact of the Industrial Revolution, the impact of, of new technologies of electricity, uh, and of course eventually uh, internal combustion, automobiles and so forth, Telegraph, um, the impact of urbanization, of mass immigration uh, on a scale at the end of the 19th century that had really not been seen um, before in American history, uh, of the creation of uh, slums in major cities, um, the creation of transcontinental railroads and immense new forms of financial wealth in corporate uh, holding companies and trusts, as they were called. Uh, all of these new developments um, changed, it was thought, the horizon of American politics and marked a new beginning, a new set of problems that a new generation of statesmen would have to face. The old problems of slavery, secession, states' rights, 
federalism, the balance between the states and the national government, these things had in a way been put aside and either settled by the war or made irrelevant by the war. Now, this, this sense that a, a new beginning had been made creates obviously a very immense problem for the biggest holdover from the old era of American politics, namely Reconstruction. Uh, one of the reasons why Reconstruction fails uh, eventually uh, is that it has very little intellectual energy. Um, the war has ended. We want to be rid of the war. We want to turn our backs on that, on the division, uh, on the bitterness, on the, on the repression that the war occasioned. And, we, and you know, as, the farther America moved from the end of the war, from Appomattox, the less energy there was in support of Reconstruction. Uh, the radical Republicans made their run, of course, in the 14th and 15th Amendments, and it's very fortunate that they did. But as far as the military reconstruction of the South goes, and even the civilian reconstruction of the South, uh, it made a little bit of headway at the beginning, and then there was a long period of essentially decline until um, it ended, you know, in 1876, 1877, and the troops, federal troops were removed from the South, and the adventure was over. Um, Reconstruction is actually, in retrospect, an interesting uh, story with perhaps some lessons for contemporary things like Iraq and the democratization of Iraq. Um, I don't, I mean, this is, I don't want to dwell on this, but one can say, uh, you know, uh, Americans um, conquer um, and, uh, and are very excited about the, the military phase of conquest. But when you actually have to reconstruct a country and turn it into completely change the political system, or at least fundamentally change the political system of a place, whether it's South Carolina or Iraq, it's very difficult. Uh, and there's something in the American grain that um, doesn't like that difficulty and shies away uh, from that difficulty. There's something about, you know, there's something in the idea of making a place more democratic that is somewhat self-contradictory, right? Uh, this was the problem in the South, as it is to some degree the problem uh, uh, in Iraq. It can be done. I mean, if you look at, say, Germany and Japan after the Second World War, you can reconstruct societies along very different lines. But it is not easy, and it takes a long time. Uh, and we really don't know how to do it well. Uh, and all of these problems surfaced in Reconstruction after the Civil War. Uh, adding to them, of course, was the fact that we were trying to reconstruct our own fellow or former or soon-to-be-again citizens. Um, and that made it even more difficult to, you know, to, military, uh, to occupy with the army parts of the country and compel them to govern themselves in a way that they did not want to. Uh, that becomes a very, very difficult intellectual enterprise, and thus also a very, very difficult um, political enterprise. Now, one last thing uh, in connection with this one final point, <laughs> that is um, another thing which contributes to the sense of a new 
America after the Civil War uh, is the fact that there are tremendous educational reforms going on uh, beginning in the 1870s. Uh, two of them are relevant to us. <clears throat> One is the spread of public schools or common schools into the South. Um, public education, of course, had begun in New England uh, almost as soon as the Puritans and Pilgrims uh, stepped ashore. Uh, but it had been basically a New England thing up until the early part of the 19th century when it began to spread into the Midwest um, and, and eventually to the West. But it didn't become a nationwide thing really until um, after the Civil War when the South, which had until then enjoyed mostly private education, uh, began to construct public schools. This becomes an important part of the background of Brown v. Board of Education, which we'll be discussing shortly um, as well. The other, in a way, more interesting educational development is the rise of the modern university. There really had not been universities in America until after the Civil War. There had been, of course, colleges and famous colleges, Harvard College, Yale College, the College of William and Mary, and so forth. Um, but, but they had been essentially liberal arts institutions, designed more to transmit knowledge than to, than, than to uncover new knowledge through research. What happens um, beginning almost immediately after the Civil War is that Americans begin to reconstruct their own education system in imitation of the German research university. Um, Johns Hopkins is the first university in America founded as a university. Johns Hopkins, John Hopkins University is founded in 1876, a hundred years um, after the Declaration of Independence. Columbia is one of the first to go from being a college to being a university. And by being a university, I mean it adds PhD programs. Um, and it begins to put as lo a lot of energy, sometimes more energy even than into undergraduate education, into turning out uh, PhDs. And PhDs are there to, not simply to teach what they've learned, but to increase the stock of knowledge through the application of various kinds of you know, scientific methods and uh, so forth, until the knowledge, uh, the, you know, the new knowledge accumulates so much that it sits around piled high and deep, um, <laughs> as you know. Now, um, uh, this, uh, this is why Woodrow Wilson is so interesting as a figure, because he has, you know, one long part of his career is in the modern research university. He's the guy who turned Princeton from being essentially a college into a graduate uh, school, into a, in a modern university uh, kind of setting. Um, he was not only a professor, of course, but was eventually the president of Princeton University before he began his political career. But then, in a sort of meteoric ascent, he ran for and won the governorship of New Jersey in 1910, and two years later was elected to the presidency of the United States. So Woodrow Wilson is an especially interesting figure for us because he connects theory and practice. He has a long part of his life in which he develops his theory of, of government. And then he has a, a sort of short, intense period at the end of his life where he puts that theory into practice or tries to put that theory into practice. So he gives us uh, an important sort of um, exemplar of these 
fantastic changes going on in American higher education and in American uh, politics. And the two really are connected in a way. Because as I'm going to try to uh, show this morning when we look now at some of uh, Wilson's writings, uh, Wilson represents a, a sort of new kind of political science in America that has a new, an entirely new understanding of and a new agenda for government. And th so the modern university, in a way, incubates the modern state, the modern American state, the 20th century liberal state. And there is, and in going from one field to the other, uh, Wilson gives us a wonderful window into these changes. Now, questions on any of that? Want to discuss any of these things? You know, when I say that the modern the university is new, I mean, uh, it's hard to realize now how new it was at the time. But probably many of the disciplines that you got your degrees in didn't exist until after the Civil War. There were no political science departments in America until after the Civil War. There were no economics departments. There were no sociology departments, no anthropology departments. These fields did not exist until they were organized in the modern university setting after the Second World War. Um, most colleges really didn't even have departments. Uh, they had professors in various fields, but they were not departmentalized and there was not the sort of elaborate uh, structure with which we're familiar from modern uh, universities. And these, these new sciences were not just new in the sense of uh, never having been um, uh, codified or staffed before in American universities. They really are, um, you know, it, it would be today like uh, creating a new department of... Um, psychopharmacology in a department. I mean, a, a, a new science, the latest thing, which requires uh, you know, now an organization of people to study it and to teach it and so forth. Well, that's really what was going on at the end of the 19th century. A new understanding leading to really new sciences that had never really been taught before. Um, and it was only in this period that you had things like the uh, professional associations, the uh, American Political Science Association, the American Historical Association, the American Economics Association. All of those were founded after the war, basically in the 1880s and 1890s. Uh, and the reason was because there would have been no one to join them before the war. Uh, only when America began to upgrade, as it were, and Germanicize uh, its schools did these new sciences and new scientists uh, or professors come into vogue. All right, so enough by way of um, propydeutic here. Now let's, let's actually take up um, our subject. Woodrow Wilson and his, uh, and his new political science and his new politics. Uh, one of the first things that the new research universities did, uh, and the professors in them, like Woodrow Wilson, was write textbooks. Terrible, terrible event in American higher education. <clears throat> um, until this time, there really hadn't been textbooks as such. Uh, you read books, <laughs> actual books, you know, uh, in class. But because... Uh, you know, there was now this great hierarchy and there were these new sciences had to be taught to the ignorant masses. Uh, you needed a, 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 a general 
way to do that, you know, uh, a quick and easy way to do that. And so the textbook industry was born. And one of the first, uh, one of the first, uh, and you know, and you need to teach the teachers of the teachers, and then the teachers need to teach the students. So you need you need books to do this. You need lines of books. Uh, one of the first of these books uh, is the first selection from Woodrow Wilson that we have in our reader here, in this uh, very nice reader that Ronald J. Pistrito has put together. Uh, <clears throat> it's an excerpt from the State. The the State is Woodrow Wilson's government textbook which he wrote for high school teachers to use, and also perhaps as an introductory uh, college text. Now, uh, it's written in that familiar, somewhat boring way that textbooks are written. Um, although it's written by a master uh, of the English language, I mean, Wilson really is quite eloquent. So it rises above standard textbook English today. Um, but what we're interested in are the ideas contained in the state. Uh, and like most textbooks, it, in a way, it makes these ideas seem straightforward and commonplace. But in our own minds, having spent so much time now with Abraham Lincoln and with the American founders, the differences between the ideas of Lincoln and the ideas in the state ought to be setting off some alarms or some bells uh, in your mind. So let's, take the, let's start at the very beginning. What, where, does, where does the state come from, according to Wilson? From family. And what kind of family? Ah, the patriarchal family. Now, what, what in the world does that mean? What, what's the implication of saying that, that government originates in the patriarchal family? That's right. Feminism's worst nightmare. <laughs> yeah, that, that politics originates in male domination and in the domination of the most, of the eldest male taken as the wisest and most powerful male. Um, but what, what further implications does tracing politics to patriarchalism have? Okay, excellent. It's, it, it completely uh, reverses the Lockean argument, right? You can't hear, you can't hear that question? Okay. Especially if you're up front and you're talking that way, it doesn't bounce back. Very ah, well. all right. So you going, especially among the teachers, if you're going to say something, if you can direct it in a way sort of towards the group rather than just facing All right. This excellent comment said <laughs> <laughs> that it, it reverses Locke. John Locke. Now, you've looked at a little bit of Locke, is that correct, early on? All right, so Locke, you know, the very first thing Locke wants to prove is that political power has nothing to do with fathers, has nothing to do with patriarchalism. Um, and he is, you know, one of the occasions for his, his writing the second treatise is, uh, and especially the first treatise of government, which I presume you didn't look at, um, is to take on this strange fellow, uh, um, who wrote a book called Patriarcha um, early in the 17th century, which had been republished in 1680 or so. Uh, Robert Filmer is his name, F-I-L-M-E-R. Filmer was sort of God's gift to liberalism because he, he made this patriarchal argument in such a way out, 
form, such a radical form, that almost everyone around began to write books denouncing him and inventing modern liberalism. And this is true of John Locke, it's true of Algernon Sidney, and there's even a third um, uh, not as famous writer who took out after uh, Robert Filmer. But what Locke wanted to, s to show in the first treatise and the second treatise was simply this. P the power of fathers over their families, that is, over their wives and their children, has nothing to do with political power. And so he makes the widest possible, dis you know, puts them at the widest possible distance in his writings. Political power originates in what? Consent. And consent is predicated on what? Our equality. Our, equality and e our equal rights as human beings. And because every human being uh, 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 is equal to every other human being, there's no natural ruler for us. There's no you know, eldest father who must govern us politically. Instead, we have to be all considered as equals in this famous state of nature. And as equals, government is derived from the fact that uh, we must be able unanimously to consent to it in the beginnings and then, you know, to decide on the form of government also by consent afterwards, right? All this is familiar. So, the American founders, Abraham Lincoln's arguments, all presuppose something like that understanding, that human beings, qua human beings, are the players out of which politics arises. Uh, each of us counting um, exactly as the same as any other because we're all members of the same species. We're all human beings. No one of us has a right to rule another without that other's consent. This is Lincoln's great argument against slavery. It's the, simply the flip side of the argument for liberty, right, and for government by consent. But here we have Woodrow Wilson, a famous idealist, a famous liberal, a famous progressive, who begins by saying, basically, Locke is completely wrong about this. Government does not originate uh, in a social contract in which people voluntarily consent to a government. Politics originates in obeying your father and him obeying his father. Now, that doesn't sound very nice. Uh, how do you get from that to something that looks like progress or liberalism. That's really what we have to sort of try to unpack now. But if there is no social contract, um, what sort of implications are we looking at for government? Yes? We're looking at a paternalistic government, one that takes care of the people in ways that the government had not done before because it was not considered the purview of government to assume those roles. Right, okay. Um, so th and there's uh, no sharp distinction between family and government, okay. Government must evolve from the state that it is in in this system to the modern system that we have. So going back to this theory of progressivism that through progress, this is how people end up getting their government. It doesn't just, it did not just 
Okay, very important point, very important point. Um, this means the story of government is not over, as it were. It's not, you know, from the Lincoln's point of view, the story of government is um, a social contract or consent of the governed, and thus a government limited to the contract that you strike. You know, you have a government to protect your inherent rights, your natural rights as an equal human being. And government isn't supposed to do more than that. Or if it does more than that, it can't be anything inconsistent with those rights that you have. So the idea of a social contract in the Lockean form, in the Lincolnian form, points towards a, a government limited by the terms of the contract. And it's essentially a, um, a relatively static understanding of what government is and does. Right? If, if your rights are inherent in your nature, if they're permanent, then government has a permanent purpose to secure those rights, uh, to, to protect your life, your liberty, and your property. And whether that's in the 18th century or the 20th century, that's going to be the essential function of government. But from Wilson's point of view, that also is a canard. Because government starts with families, something very different from modern impersonal government. And the story of politics is a historical story. It's a story of evolving from that to what we have today and continuing the continuing evolution of what we have today into what we're going to have tomorrow. So in that sense, um, you could say that uh, Lincoln is, or I'm sorry, that Wilson is one of the very first to formulate the theory of a living constitution. We use this term today um, frequently to talk about judges. You know, do judges, Republicans want to know, is this going to be, is this guy going to be an activist judge who thinks he can, you know, change the constitution as he wants to, or is he going to be a, um, uh, in favor of judicial restraint and a modest role for judges. Well, um, this question, which we apply mostly to the judiciary, Lincoln applies, I mean, sorry, Wilson applies to all of government, all the branches of government, all the activities of government. Government is something different in different historical periods. And thus, there is no static story. Government is a dynamic story, evolving according to the new challenges of new ages, new social conditions. Now, let's um, turn for a moment from uh, the state, this textbook, to the last book that uh, Woodrow Wilson wrote. Um, here we have an excerpt uh, starting on page 175 from Constitutional Government in America. This is a series of lectures he gave at Columbia University in 1907 that were collected and published in 1908. And let's go to 176, if we could. Bottom of page 176. Uh, this, by the way, um, this book would form, in a way, the, the a kind of um, uh, intellectual background to Wilson's campaign only four years later for the presidency. 
And he would say in political speeches uh, many of the same things that he had said in this book uh, as an academic um, um, expert. And among the things he repeats is this at the bottom of page 176. Um, the makers of our federal constitution uh, followed the scheme as they found it expounded in Montesquieu, followed it with genuine scientific enthusiasm. Uh, the admirable expositions of the Federalist read like thoughtful applications of Montesquieu to the political needs and circumstances of America. They're full of the theory of checks and balances. The president is balanced off against Congress, Congress against the president, and each against the courts. Politics, to skip a little bit, is turned into mechanics under his touch. The theory of gravitation is supreme. But the trouble with that theory is that government is not a machine but a living thing. It falls under the theory, not under the theory of the universe, but under the theory of organic life. It is accountable to Newton, I'm sorry, to Darwin, not to Newton. It is modified by its environment, necessitated by its tasks, shaped to its functions by the sheer pressure of life. No living thing can have its organs offset against each other as checks and live. And as he says at the conclusion of that paragraph, this is not theory but fact and displays its force as fact, whatever theories may be thrown across its track. Living political constitutions must be Darwinian in structure and in practice. All right. Now, what does that, okay, what does that mean, first of all, to say that constitutions must be Darwinian in structure and practice? Okay, so government is change and adaptation. Yes. Uh, perhaps I'm misinterpreting this, but is this changing from the, the idea of natural law and human beings all having uh, a natural right uh, to survival of the fittest? Is he suggesting that whoever can claw their way to the top? <laughs> is, I, I mean, maybe yes. I'm exaggerating, but I'm kind of getting this picture of whoever climbs to the top of the political ladder then dominates those who haven't been able to make it. Right. Okay, no. I mean, Darwinism means survival of the fittest, right, at some point. So he must mean something like that. Wilson must mean something like survival of the fittest. Stanford. Well, I think, you know, he goes on to discuss the presidency. And in these Darwinian terms, he's talking about even parts of the Constitution. If, if, if survival of the fittest, if, if, it, if something becomes weak, it atrophies like the president. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and Congress grows and, and takes over power. So he sees that kind of changing, you know, not what's written on paper, but in practice how some things can evolve in power. All right. So in other words, the, the, the notion of the living constitution is a Darwinian notion. That's what you're saying. Okay. Mark. I guess you could then say that he's a compassionate Darwinian almost. <laughs> like, yes. Yes, okay. Not so 
<clears throat> he's not, he's not you're, you're right, it's sort of compassionate Darwinian, he says. Uh, meaning that um, he's not talking about uh, you know, eliminating the poor. Um, but he is talking about changing institutions um, to keep up with uh, the new conditions of life. And, but somehow that's, that makes for compassion, not for um, dog-eat-dog uh, <clears throat> survivalism, right? Okay, yes? Okay. All right. Yes. Here's here's a, a very important question. So, what does this mean for natural rights? The the notion that all human beings have the same rights and equal rights because of their unchanging human nature. Once you bring Darwinism into the picture, are you saying that human nature itself changes over time? And if human nature changes, doesn't that mean that our rights must change too? or can change, too. And the answer to that is, that's exactly what he means. Yes? I also had a question. If, if uh, progressivism means that the future is better than the present, the present is better than the past, that's not what Darwin is saying. So, I mean, how does that, how does he kind of get that <laughs> I mean, Darwin never really said that one animal that evolved is better than the past one. I mean, that was, I just, I just wondered if, how he, if there's anything that alludes to that. Or... Well, the um, question is, right, does this, Darwin doesn't mean that, Darwinism doesn't mean, does it, that, um, you know, because the elephant succeeds the mammoth, the elephant is better than the mammoth. It just means that, Faced with new kinds of environmental challenges and conditions, one, you know, uh, um, a, a, a more primitive form adapts itself into a different form, something more like the elephant, and it survives better. Unless he interprets it that because it was more fit to survive, it's better, which I don't, maybe he's doing that, but I mean, no scientist ever has said that one species that has evolved is necessarily better than the past one. All right, but, but this is what Wilson says. Let's look briefly at a few quotes now. Um, page 46 from, the, uh, from his textbook, The State, the section entitled, The Better Prevail. Of course, he writes, in such a competition, the better custom would prevail over the worse. And he goes on to explain that religion and the family organization were for these early groups of kindred men the two indexes of character. In them was contained inferiority or superiority. The more serviceable customs won the day. And one could dip into this book at other points. Let me see if I can find one more. To 
see that he says things like this uh, fairly frequently. Does he mean better for the majority? In the case of society, yeah, better for the majority. Better for the, because society is, uh, is moved eventually by the majority. Uh, not necessarily in the beginning, but eventually, yes. Does he? What does that say about minority? Okay. Right. Okay. What about the minority is the question. Well, uh, let's think about this for a minute. Let's follow his his own chain of of logic. What we're grappling with here is a, a problem of historical understanding because when we think of Darwinism and when we think of social Darwinism, especially we tend to think of something uh, frightening, reactionary, sort of semi-fascistic or Nazistic, you know, the survival of the, the, or the dominion of the master race over inferior races. That's a kind of, that's the kind of social Darwinism we think of. But what we see here in Wilson is what you might call left-wing social Darwinism. I mean, a very different account of Darwin, a very different Um, conclusion from the Darwinian premises. But nonetheless, and this is uh, one of the uh, part of my what I'm trying to show you is the the wholesale change in sort of intellectual orientation from the founder's generation and Lincoln's generation to Wilson's generation. The change from thinking of human beings as uh, essentially equal because we know what a human being is. We know what it means to belong to the human species. And therefore, you don't need a historical account of what good government is. You need just to work with human nature and see what human beings need and how they should agree about what they need in order to have good government. That's the theory of the social contract. Wilson begins by throwing out the theory of the social contract. It's a fiction, he says. There never was such a thing. The fact is that government has evolved over thousands of years. The fact is that government has evolved faster among some peoples than among other peoples. What does he say at the beginning of the state? What is the, what are we going to study here? Whom are we, who are we going to study in this book? The Aryans. The Aryan race will form the subject of this book. Why are we going to, con- and, and to some degree, the Semitic race as well? <laughs> um, now, why? Why are the Aryans and the Semites going to be, um, constitute the object of study in this book? Because they have a patriarchal system. <laughs> Isn't that part of it? Some yeah. Of these other cultures that have a matriarchal system or that they believe that you're inherited from like earthly things and things of the earth rather than. Right, okay. Um, That's right. He says that the Aryans have uh, evolved from a patriarchal family structure. And he implies that the non-Aryan races uh, may have had a more primitive family structure. That is, he suggests that there may have been polygamy and polyandry, you know, which is the opposite of polygamy, sharing husbands, 
rather than wives. In other words, that, the, that the, these other races uh, have rather, <clears throat> you know, racy beginnings. Uh, they have <clears throat> some disordered sexual histories. Um, and one of the consequences of that is that they have not evolved as fast and as far as the Aryans have, beginning with a patriarchal, a, a purer, more patriarchal family organization. Yes? Right. Yes, he believes that rights themselves evolve. <clears throat> uh, rights are an evolutionary category. They're, they're, they're a discovery in history. Their meaning changes over the course of history. And hence, um, he does believe that individuals have rights, but he doesn't believe that they have natural rights. He doesn't believe that, that our nature, the kind of animal that we are, is the basis of our rights. He believes that our rights evolve uh, our rights are customs um, that evolve as our civilization evolves. And thus they will be different things in different periods, but they are cumulatively getting uh, larger and richer. Because uh, although he is a, a Darwinian, he's also a progressivist. Um, he's a, uh, you know, Woodrow Wilson... Um, like many of these early American political scientists and university professors, um, had a kind of, not only, uh, had a kind of Germanic education. They read lots of Hegel and of the uh, German historical school and the English historical school. So they had a kind of, uh, what you see in progressivism of the Wilson kind is a strange combination of, Dar of Darwinism and sort of ethical progress. Uh, you see a, a, a mixing of the categories. You're, uh, Maria is exactly right in saying Darwinism doesn't point to moral progress. It just means that the fitter species survive and the ones that aren't as fit um, don't survive. But to that sort of idea of physical evolution, um, Wilson adds moral, a moral taint, a moral um, glitter, a moral content. Because for him, survival of the fittest in politics means survival of the morally fittest, of the more advanced. Uh, and the two things, though, go together because the, the countries that are more advanced are the most powerful countries, the most scientifically up-to-date, and they're also the most ethically up-to-date. So what, what Wilson, in a way, presupposes is that scientific progress or material progress and moral progress go together. That's what makes him a progressive. Um, the, most advanced states, the most advanced states in the world um, are also the most moral states in the world. And by that he means the states that the Teutonic races have established. He means Europe and he means... United States, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, in particular the, the uh, parts of the world settled by 
the Anglo-Saxons and the Anglo-Saxon race. Now, he doesn't believe, therefore, that the, the other races are to be um, disregarded. He thinks that they eventually will catch up to the Anglo-Saxons. But it's clear that there is a difference between the Teutonic and the Anglo-Saxon level of development, which is superior to the uh, level of development of the other races in the world. But he holds out hope and is confident that in the end, progress will lift everyone and will bring everyone along. That's his peculiar combination of Darwinianism and what we might say is liberalism. Right? There's a big difference between the developed world and the developed races and the, and the rest. And in this world, the developed nations must take the lead because they are more civilized, more powerful, and more moral. Right? That's why they're at the top of the world in terms of uh, their arts and sciences and their military power. Yes, ma'am. Yes, well, it, it's a very good question. If the Germans and the Germanic people are at the top of the world, how can they turn out to be the Huns uh, in World War I? How can they turn out to be barbarians and uncivilized? Um, and this, this actually is a very difficult question uh, for Wilson to answer. Um, and, and, but his answer is that it's not, it's not the fault of the race. It's a fault of... Um, the class government that exists there. It's, um, it's, the, it's the Junkers, it's the aristocracy, it's the backward-looking part of the Germanic government that captures the rest and plunges the world into this uh, war. And fortunately, the higher ethical culture, you know, Kant, uh, you know, Beethoven and uh, Goethe and so forth, the higher ethical culture doesn't autom didn't automatically translate into the Kaiser's mind and into the mind of the aristocracy um, around him. Well, where did he find evidence that this greater scientific mind was linked to a more moral government? Where in all of Germany's history did he find that evidence? Well, he, he finds it primarily in the, uh, not so much in Germany. He finds the roots of it in Germany, but he finds the flowers in the British Constitution, the American Constitution, and in sort of the, the culture of individual rights and their preservation in an evolutionary way um, uh, in Anglo-Saxon countries. Now, so this is why Woodrow Wilson, when you actually read him, is wonderfully politically incorrect. He is, he is as Eurocentric as any writer could be. He finds the origin of the state in the, fam in the patriarchal family, he finds the Aryan races to have had the patriarchal family in its perfection at their beginnings. And yet, despite all these things, which would now seem to us incredibly wrongheaded and reactionary, he turns out to be the first liberal, the first and in some ways the most insightful 20th century liberal. And the, the mystery for us is how to figure that transition 
How do, what does this tell us about, if anything, about modern liberalism? That's the enduring mystery and the question in uh, Wilson's life and career. Mark. Sure, sure. Absolutely, yeah. Sa- uh, uh, similar kinds of, uh, of ideas, yeah. Just a quick question tying into what we were discussing last night, but did Du Bois um, buy into this a little bit, but try to say that the towns of town were this, like in a, almost in, uh, in a similar way of looking at what George Wilson was trying to say? Um, I don't know Du Bois well enough to know. Do, Lucas, do you want to tackle that? Now, this is, I mean, what's difficult about this is, uh, I mean, when you look back at it, you can acknowledge certain things. Um, that, you know, the, in many ways, this part of Woodrow Wilson's thought sounds more like someone from the antebellum South than like a follower of Abraham Lincoln or, uh, you know, James Madison or uh, uh, John Adams, right? Um, that the world is divided into races, that they progress at uneven paces, um, and that uh, to understand politics, you have to understand how it grows out of family, and in particular, patriarchal, hierarchical kinds of family uh, systems. All that's very different, and that's what I mean by almost a sort of different worldview in this period after the Civil War uh, than before it, except for certain parts of the South and certain Southern writers and, uh, and theorists. You know, the great, the great um, age of eugenics as a, um, uh, as a legitimate science and a legitimate public policy is, after all, in the beginning in this period, at the end of the 19th century, the 1910s and the 1920s. This is the great age of American eugenics um, uh, uh, as, a, as a science that every um, respectable, blue-blooded American would have an interest in promoting, right? Um, you, you, want to inc- you want to breed your stock on your farms so as to make it better, stronger, so the cows will give more milk. Uh, why wouldn't you want to breed a better human race? Why wouldn't you want to bring the benefits of... Um, uh, artificial selection to those of natural selection. 
so as to breed a better human being or, or uh, uh, better races of human beings faster scientifically rather than leaving it to nature to do slowly through natural selection or Darwinian evolution. The, the moral um, allure of all this, of course, was destroyed by the Nazis and by World War II. Um, after that, eugenics has a very different connotation and race thinking has a very different connotation and social Darwinism indeed has a very different kind of uh, connotation. Um, But in looking at the period before World War II, stretching from roughly the end of the Civil War to World War II, you're looking at at a very different kind of intellectual universe where ideas that we would simply rule out as, as not worthy of discussion in polite company dominate the sciences or, or the social sciences, many of the social sciences, and penetrate the thinking even of someone who is as liberal and obviously as cultured and as moral and well-meaning as Woodrow Wilson. Now, uh, so in a way this is, although we sort of know this maybe in the abstract, when you actually confront it, it's jarring, but interesting for that very reason, because we have to see how did modern liberalism grow from these unusual, to say the least, roots. Right. Okay, the question is, um, uh, how to square what seems to be this kind of historical relativism that morals vary according to the state of development of, the, of a civilization uh, with um, modern liberalism. And I would say this, I mean, Wilson isn't really a relativist, I mean, because he assumes that history is progressive. So even though morals vary, and primitive morals are different from an, from an advanced races or civilization's morals, the, the notion that there is a direction of, of evolution or development means that um, there's a goal. It makes sense in the end, because it is a steady upward kind of progress overall. Um, so there is, there is what uh, Hegel would call, what Francis Fukuyama, if you know uh, his name, current, current uh, foreign policy uh, analyst, what, he would, what they would call the end of history. That is, there's a goal for history. Uh, it is progressive, and you can be confident of that. And thus, that all the changes of morality are not merely relative because they are upward-tending. There is an ascent in history. And history is not just a record, therefore, of what's happened. History is the story of man's own development.
from a more primitive into a more advanced state of scientific power and of ethical consciousness. Yeah. Yes? I'm trying to Sorry. put this all together with what we have to teach when we teach the progressive age and there are all the yeah. reform movements and the political reform movement. And I really see how this fits because if you assume things are always getting better and you adapt to circumstances, you see a problem and people can't earn as much as they want or they don't have enough political power, they have right. to think of a solution you will apply it. I was also noticing that um, in his book on constitutional government, which comes out in 1908, he's just starting his political career and uh, starting to think of this perhaps, and he says, uh, I think it's on page 181, in that middle there, that when he's looking at the type of person that we need to be president, we don't really need somebody who has actual experiences <laughs> in affairs as much as particular yes, right. qualities of mind and character. It's yeah. almost as if he's saying, let me write this textbook now so that in four years when I have very meager, meager political experience, people will be able to see why I'm just the guy. Right. You, need, you don't need a person with a lot of experience. You need a person a lot like me. <laughs> Yeah, that's, <clears throat> that's his argument, uh, essentially. Sure. It was almost as though he would want a philosopher king, in a sense. But um, my question is, how do you think Wilson, and I know this is speculative, how Wilson would have dealt with the Great Depression? Well, uh, we know, I mean, here's the inter interesting thing. I mean, FDR is a Wilsonian. Um, he acknowledges Wilson as, as his great progressive commander-in-chief. That's a quote. Uh, and he, indeed, he says, if this is in one of the, um, I think it's in his acceptance address, uh, FDR's, uh, in 1932, he says, if uh, Wilson had had two full terms to devote to domestic reform, the New Deal would have been unnecessary. But because Wilson was distracted by the war, he was unable to complete the new freedom. And so the New Deal becomes the completion of the new freedom. Uh, now, we don't know, of course, that Wilson would actually have done what FDR did uh, or used the means that FDR um, adopted. But we know that FDR thought of himself as, as a Wilsonian confronting this crisis. <clears throat> so I think there would be um, without, without a one-to-one -one policy overlap, there would be a philosophical overlap, uh, which is probably more important and more interesting <clears throat> than figuring out whether you know, w Wilson would have had a, a works progress administration uh, or whatnot. But we know from the way that he ran the domestic side of our politics during World War I that he was not, he was not averse to you know, having government penetrate deeply into society, control speech, control uh, conditions of production, can, you know, take over um, industries if necessary or control their prices and so forth. So there would have been some broad overlap and in fact Wilson might have tried more uh, in the way of uh, fundamental change than uh, Roosevelt might have. That's a possibility at least. Yeah. Well, now I want to turn in the, in the few minutes remaining uh, to talk actually about Wilson's Politics and to sort of draw out from some of these rather um, uh, amazing uh, theories his practical political strategies. 
in this chapter on the presidency from uh, constitutional government, it's there that Wilson says we need a Darwinian constitution, not a Newtonian one. Now, let's think about that uh, comparison for a moment. Um, if you think about a Newtonian solar system, uh, you think about planets that you know, stay in their orbits, uh, comets that follow certain prescribed movements, and so forth. Now, what is it that holds the solar system in place? What is it that keeps all the, the planets and the moons exactly where they should be? Gravity. gravity. So what is the analogy to gravity in politics? Wilson says that um, the American founders were Newtonians. They built a, you know, uh, a government of executive, legislative, and judicial powers, and they arranged them in such a way that they would never interfere with one another, but each branch would stay in its own orbit, would stay in its, uh, keep to its own powers and not encroach on the powers of others. Now, what force in human nature keeps that constitution in place? which would be analogous to the force of gravity keeping the solar system and its parts in place. Checks and balances. But what part of human nature is called upon to enforce checks and balances? Self-interest. So when Wilson says that the founding was Newtonian, he is saying that the, the law of gravity for human nature in motion is self-interest. You can count on human beings to pursue their self-interest, and therefore you can count on them when they're put in the, uh, uh, in the presidency to defend the presidency's prerogatives because they're his prerogatives. You can count on the uh, Speaker of the House when he's put into his position to defend the prerogatives of the House because they are his prerogatives. His self-interest connects with his duty to keep his power hold, to keep his branch intact and to ward off any encroachments from the other branches. But when Wilson says that, that that's unfortunate, it might have been fine for the 18th century, but it's not adequate to the 20th century, he is saying, in effect, that relying on the self-interest in human nature is now an outmoded principle. In other words, there's a kind of ethical critique in that comparison to Newton. Um, he's saying that from the 18th century point of view, relying on individual, in, individual interest or self-interest was fine, but it's not adequate to our problems today. Now, the reason it's, why isn't it adequate? That's the question. Yes, Dennis. No, that's right. But, I mean, those are rhetorical questions, in effect. His answer to them is, yes, we have to examine our own, our own situation in the spirit of the founders. That is, we don't owe them any sort of reverence or veneration of the sort that James Madison talks about, say, in Federalist uh, 49. 
Uh, we're not supposed to look up to them as the wise lawgivers who came up with this wonderful constitution that our job is now simply to transmit and to uphold. He's saying we must, we must pay them the sincerest compliment or the sincerest flattery of imitating them. In other words, we must think of ourselves as constitutional makers or remakers. Um, Wilson famously, Wilson is the first presidential candidate, um, and certainly he's the first president of the United States to criticize the Constitution, to say that um, the era, as he does, the era of blind worship of the Constitution is over. Uh, because, I mean, fundamentally, from his point of view, our problem is we have an 18th century Constitution, but we face 20th century problems. And so, whereas from Madison's point of view, or from even, say, Abraham Lincoln's point of view, what you want to try to do is to keep the times in tune with the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. You want to try to, um, you know, keep, um, to teach each generation the truths of the Declaration and, uh, and the goodness of the Constitution. Wilson has a very different idea. Instead of keeping the times in tune with the Constitution, he wants to keep the Constitution in tune with the times. And that means that you must have a Constitution that can easily alter and change. You must have a more elastic Constitution. You've got to have a living Darwinian Constitution. Now, um, what, what that means in particular is that the separation of powers, which is one of the chief you know, structural principles of the old Constitution, has to be overcome. Uh, because you can't have, in the old days, when it was thought, when we were thinking in Newtonian terms, we thought that just like, you know, you had to have um, prescribed orbits for the planets, you have to have a prescribed orbit for the, uh, um, the Congress and for the presidency and for the courts. And one had to check the other in a kind of gravitational ballet of self-interest. But the result of that, according to Wilson, was that America, it worked. That is, American government succeeded in going around and around and around in circles. It succeeded in not becoming tyranny. But that's not enough. Instead of going around in circles, America, sh America should be moving forward. We should be, uh, you know, it's linear motion into the future that we should be aiming at, not keeping the same pattern going forever. And so, uh, the, the separation of powers <coughs> has to be overcome in some way in order to make political progress easy in America. Because it's not easy you know, under the old Constitution. You've got to get two houses of Congress. You've got to get the president to sign on. The Senate owes its, uh, you know, owes uh, a great deal to the state legislatures and so forth. And if, you want to, and if you want to try to amend the Constitution, forget it. I mean, you need not only two-thirds of each house, but you need three-quarters of the state legislatures. Very, very difficult to make any kind of organic change in that Constitution. But if you think the Constitution needs to be organically changing all the time, if it has to be flexible and in order to confront the problems of slums and uh, urbanization and uh, new cor you know, big corporations and so forth, then you've got to find a 
means to get around the separation of powers. Now, as a young man, as a young political scientist, Wilson proposed amending the Constitution to turn it into a parliamentary system because a parliamentary system doesn't have separation of powers of the same kind that we do. In a parliamentary system, such as you have in England or elsewhere in Europe and the world today, um, you know, the, the executive is elected out of the legislature. The prime minister comes out of the majority party in the legislature, out of the coalition of parties that make up a majority in the legislature. And the, pri the, 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 the executive and the legislature are therefore one. When the prime minister wants to do something, he can be almost certain that his party in the legislature will support him. So if you look, say, at the coming of the welfare state in Europe, uh, generally speaking, it came quickly and it came early. Um, and oftentimes it came in a single sitting of parliament because parliament really can make tremendous political changes quickly in such a system where there's no separation between the executive and the legislature. Wilson wanted to turn the American system into something more like that as a young man. But he quickly realized that because that would require constitutional amendments, which are very difficult to get under the old system, it would never work. You could never, uh, if you played by the rules of the old system, you would never be able to give birth to a new system. Right? Therefore, as he got older, he went to a second um, means of reforming <clears throat> and opening up the American Constitution to progress. And this, the second strategy that he prescribed, <clears throat> excuse me, was what he calls, and what we have come to call, leadership. Here's where this word enters our politics. Now, of course, it's not a completely new word. But if you look back, say, in the 18th century or 19th century, you'll find that although the word exists, it usually has a pejorative connotation in, uh, in our politics. If you look at the Federalist Papers, with one exception, every time the Federalist Papers mentions a leader, it means a demagogue. A leader is a synonym, basically, for a demagogue. A leader is someone who stirs up the people against the law, or who stirs up a people against the Constitution. And uh, a person who plays on the people's passions so as to overcome their reason. What's amazing about our politics today, which I think we owe more than to anyone else, to Woodrow Wilson, is that we now regard leadership as an almost unabashedly good qualification. We compete to be leaders and to show our leadership. But what had been basically a term of dispraise has now become a tremendous term of praise. Now, how did that happen? Well, it, I think the origin of the change is in Wilson's own political science, his argument that if we can't actually organically change the separation of powers in the Constitution, because that's too difficult, we can change the spirit with which a president addresses the Constitution. We can teach him to be a leader of public opinion, a party leader, 
who, through his party, connects to the legislature and brings them along, leads them to enact his party program for fundamental change. And in so doing, you can, as a reformer president, as a, ref as a leader of reform, you can lead your party into the uh, creation of the new kinds of administrative agencies, um, commissions, and um, departments that will become the welfare state and the administrative state in the course of the 20th century. Now, um, let me stop there because our time is up. We'll continue. We'll, I want to flesh out a few more uh, of these Wilsonian ideas in the next section before we move on to, uh, to FDR. Thank you.